0: WordCast episode 155, go! I'm Dylan Vento, and today I'm joined by Matt Tumelo Hopkins. Hey, Mello. Hello. How you doing?
1: I'm good, how are
0: you? I am great. Uh, Like I just said, I'm excited to have another... Uh, composer slash sound designer on the podcast because I can guarantee that their audio is going to sound good. So Almost didn't. F- Almost didn't, but we got to yeah. figure it out. Uh, it's such a pain sometimes. I know you can relate.
1: Yeah. Um, audio, well, like my dad, who was like an early, I guess, looker at how big computers were going to be and uh, went into uh, computer tech support told me to never get a job that relies on technology and really fucked that up
0: sorry dad really sorry
1: sorry.
0: uh i mean i i i don't know from that perspective my dad still doesn't know how to use a computer so (laughs) he could he could never warn me
1: yeah i mean in a roundabout way we had computers in the house earlier than most people because of this and that may have led to me having this career, so
0: what was your like uh earliest computer usage memory?
1: I feel like in um in ninety-five I tried to download a one megabyte file that said it was the entire game of DiddyCon Racing. <laughs> um, something like that. It was it was definitely like ninety four, ninety five, uh first got on the internet and just couldn't believe it. Um but I was I was part of my it was student technology learning program STLP in my elementary school, and we like made the school's website and stuff. oh so cool. it was pretty, it was pretty exciting,
0: yeah, I remember doing stuff like that in elementary uh, yeah, elementary school, middle school, uh but using tables mm-hmm. a bunch of tables in my early web dev days <laughs> uh, but my earliest memory was probably just using m s. paint uh, my uh, parents bought like a Packard Bell and a printer. Yeah, around the same time, 95, 96, and they uh, would, uh, I I would just open up MS Paint and just make a bunch of colored drawings and then print them out in full color, and we (laughs) ran through our ink pretty fast, and uh, I don't think they bought ink after that.
1: (laughs) I do, if you're talking earliest computer memory, I was thinking earliest internet memory, but uh, computer memory is probably also MS Paint and the Gorilla game in Basic as well
0: gorilla game i'm not familiar with that
1: uh yeah there's well i don't know how to access right uh right now but in command prompt you can open up in on 3.1 you could open up a game that you were two gorillas standing on opposite buildings um and you could throw bananas at each other or the moon if you wanted to and you put in certain velocity and um angle i guess and uh, then you were yeah just trying to compute that to hit the other gorilla and it was a game that you could play, um, switching off the keyboard with somebody else. And I played it with my dad. So what did that look like? Because uh, three point
0: one was still that was that. Did that use a GUI at that? That wasn't all uh, text based, right? There
1: was a GUI, but it was yeah. just like
0: that was that big jump between like three point five, three point one, and ninety five,
1: right? Yeah, you could definitely see the bananas being thrown. <laughs> so it wasn't just a readout of what had happened. Sure. Um, but it wasn't using like ASCII art or
0: whatever. It was using
1: some. Yeah, it seemed to be actually be using like color blocks. Cool.
0: That that all that stuff gets kind of screwy with me because you know mm-hmm. I was born I was born ninety one, so like I don't really have, uh, still don't a good understanding of the timeline. Yeah. Of like, okay, this is when three point one came out, and obviously Windows ninety five came out in ninety five, and then you had ninety eight, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, before then, it wa it all kind of just meshed together. Like if you showed me a MS-DOS and then 3.1, I can't give you like a good timeline, like how far apart those things are.
1: Yeah. What I, I think the way that I can do it is by the sound, the startup sound, um, in 95 is the one that resonates the most with me. So I can tell that's when I use computers the most. Have you ever seen
0: that YouTube video that just has them all play? one after another in sequence?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. That is how I figured it out. I was trying to figure (laughs) out which one I liked the most. It's definitely 95. Like, I don't see how 95 couldn't be your favorite, but it's just me. (laughs) It's just my opinion. Brian Eno made those. Really? Yeah. For 95, at least.
0: Huh. I feel like... I might have seen you tweet about that. That might sound familiar. (laughs) Um. So, Mello sound designer, composer. How is the life? How how is the work going?
1: Um it's like going pretty easy right now. Um I just so I just did a thing that I do to myself a lot, which is to announce the date of a project like way before it's done in a in a order to like light a fire under my ass. Um I found that it's a really good tactic for me cuz it's the closest thing to deadlines um in freelance and it kind of just puts me on a schedule to complete something. Um, it's but, yeah. really
0: intimidating when I see you do that. Like, it really scares me. <laughs> like, it's like, this is when this album's coming out, and this, this is the date I'm going to hit. I'm like, uh, yeah. uh, oh, okay.
1: I had to, to uh, delay my last one, but honestly, I work so quickly between these that I don't think anyone minds. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've been following my post or following the hip-hop group Brockhampton that last year they released three albums and like, I don't know, every three months you would get another Brockhampton full album. And like when they push back the date, he would still kind of be sad, even though you just had and are probably still (laughs) listening to the last thing. It would kind of be, ah, because you've set your fans up to a certain standard of uh, quality and quantity.
0: Is Return of the Soul the only album you've had out this year?
1: No, I also did Memories of Tokyo Toe. It doesn't seem like it was this year because most of the production actually happened at the end of last year, but Memories of Tokyo Toe really, I think it was in January that I set the release date for that one, um, and it came out February 20th.
0: Wow. So between those two times, uh, starting on Return of the Soul and finishing Tokyo Toe, were you just working on freelance gigs and stuff? or
1: Yeah, a little bit. And um, I, I kind of cut them off once I realized that like, No, if I'm saying I'm going to make this album, then I need to at least focus like some weeks on just that. I need to. Uh, So I did do that eventually. But um, yeah, I'll have a a few more tracks hitting. But for a while there, like there was a new song appearing in a game from me uh, Mm -hmm. every week. Like I had a song in regular human basketball. Um, What else did I do? um, Had some sound effects in another game did the, like a little three song soundtrack for a mobile game called squat bot. So I just had, I was doing little collabs here and there. Um, a lot of people recently have approached me with like compilation soundtracks and wanting me to make like one or two tracks. Um, it seems like it's become a popular thing that you might see a lot of games coming out with.
0: What's your opinion on that? Because I was thinking about that myself, um, because I've just kind of had this growing network of really talented Composers and musicians just talking to. And part of me just feel would feel really bad if I just approached one of them to make an entire album um, for, for a game. But on the other hand, I understand OST and album sales can help bolster an artist's revenue for all the music they've created. So if you then start splitting that up amongst 12 different artists or six different artists or whatever, is there any value there? For any artist to join a compilation, um,
1: well, yeah, I definitely prefer doing a full soundtrack. But the the actual reason would be that it's like more stable of a job, and you could stay with the same team for longer and uh, have time to actually think about what you're gonna do and make it. Like when I do these solo tracks, I still think they're very good. The regular human basketball thing is probably my favorite thing that I did this year. But um, it's it really feels like you can put you can add it to your collection if you did like, I don't know, eight to 12 songs or something like that, a full soundtrack. I can also sell the album like you mentioned. Um, however, if you are entering into a compilation, I think as long as you're getting paid fairly, you still definitely do it. And especially if the game is one that's really going to pop off. For example, uh, having a song in Celeste, a game that did very well, has done very well for me and like continues to. Uh, get the, the revenue from just having like what well, I'm like one eighth of that release and I'm still getting pretty good money from it now and then.
0: That's awesome to hear. Yeah, because yeah. I mean that that would be my worry. Cause it it's it would be interesting to see a bunch of different artists take on like the same type of game.
1: Yeah. I think it's uh it can be should only be done for a certain style. Like I would almost love if somebody made like a new Tony Hawk style game where you just had like almost a mixtape of wildly different artists it would work for the right game but or something like Ali ollie, ollie i guess was the recent ish indie incarnation of that right um having a compilation soundtrack but I, I don't ever think that it should be done just because you want to work with multiple people i think people putting together a game should think about like whether it's actually going to fit their model i know it is hard to like Pick one composer if you have a bunch of cool composers around you, though. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, so you you do you do game composition and, and sound design, then you also do your your albums uh, kind of on the side, and then other freelance work. And we were talking before before we started recording about kind of your your conscious effort to kind of move away from composing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, or you know your your thinking behind that?
1: Yeah. Um, in I mean, games are, I'm sure anyone who listens to your podcast and looks back at some of your past episodes and you've tackled like a lot of the things that are wrong in the game industry. Um, they are, it is tough to, to work here. It's tough to tackle down every, our games art argument that comes up. There's another one this week, this, this week that we're recording this. Um, and it's also, you know, labor is a very huge issue right now. Um, I just earlier this year left a company that was paying me very badly. I've slowly raised my rates since then, but a lot of people haven't. There's, I feel like nobody's getting paid what they're worth in the industry, in the space. And also it's, it's just so hard to, to have a, a profitable game, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I guess. Um, so it's something that you really do for the love, and I think that after only three years, it's almost burned me out. Like, I had so much love coming into it of just, I uh, wanted to work at DigiPen when I was 11, or work at DigiPen, go to DigiPen when I was 11, and, and make games, and uh, used RPG Maker and all this stuff, and once I got into music, I wanted to see how I could put that into games, and now I'm here, and it's like, Tired. <laughs> already um so but really i think i had memories of tokyo toe this one really big successful album that was me doing exactly what i want to do and it did real well and people had a positive response to it i was like okay i should go down this wish list of like albums i want to make for a little while and not worry so much about games not feel like I'm only having my career if I'm attached to a, like a studio or a major game. Sure. Uh so I've relaxed on that a little bit. I'm definitely going to take any contracts that I can that come my way and they still are like you're going to hear me on stuff through the next 2 years for sure, but um it's not my main focus anymore.
0: Right. And and now supplementing it with the albums that you're doing, it kind of gives you the 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 freedom to choose the game contracts that, you know, are healthier and are leading kind of games into a proper direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As I I raise my rates, there are going to be some people who can't hang with it. And it's because of... I consider it to be because of the industry overall. Because, like I said, no one's making the money. um, Even the people who are trying to hire you on. So some people just can't go up uh, to the higher rates. Um, But... I can take the jobs that are they're going to pay me and that are going to be worth it rather than thinking, oh, this is the only thing that's going to come in this month. Um, so I have to take it. It doesn't matter how much they can pay me. I have to take something.
0: So your feelings about, obviously your feelings about labor are echoed across the rest of the industry. But what about within your local, or not local, but your your personal network of other composers and artists do you feel like a lot of other people are feeling the same
1: type of burnout and the same type of frustration um i think i might in in my like personal peer circle i think i might well there's there's like one other person that's with me on it but otherwise everyone else is still pretty pretty down um i've connected myself with a lot of people who i think are just starting into games like made music for a long time, but are just now like dipping their toe into games. And so I think there's a lot of optimism there when I have only have, have been doing it for like four years now. And let me tell you, when you work on like one game that keeps re-releasing or revising and ends up being like a four year thing, no matter how much you love that game, it can be very tiring. Um, and yeah, I think that, that i've i've hit a level of of burnout and like conflict between the things i really want to do and the things i get hired for in games like um desperately want to do a horror thing as as uh, you can tell if you follow me on twitter um but but no one's really hiring for that so i'm making my own horror album trying to get it out uh, wherever i can and not rely on games to like hit me up with the perfect match for the thing i want to make a thing that i like um that I resent and am afraid of in artistic life is to have a Wikipedia page that just shows I didn't do anything for a year or whatever. Like, I look back, I'm weirdly like fastidious with looking at the discographies of the artists that I follow and seeing like how productive they were. <laughs> and it's really weird. And if I see someone who just didn't make anything for a few years or everything was like strangled by their label, just didn't come out, I'm just. I think that is the saddest thing in the world that we didn't get more from that person, and especially because I'm uh, two of the the artists that I love the most ever, uh, Jay Dilla and Nujabes, uh, both passed away too early, and you can see like how how certain forces held them back from making all the stuff they could have made during their life. Um, it's it's a damn shame, and I I don't want to like wait around for someone to hire me. I want to be always making music what were you talking about <laughs> labor um yeah so so i'm not i am like ready to ready to roll um i'm living in like a what what people in games would probably consider like a rural area even though it's not really it's like one of the biggest cities in kentucky uh, lexington what's and, the
0: population there just out of curiosity i want to oh, see how gosh. it compares to richmond
1: hmm I actually don't know, I want to say like four hundred thousand
0: okay that's that's like a hundred fifty k more than Richmond, so really, yeah,
1: oh, it's surprising to me Richmond's quarter mil. Hmm.
2: Wow. Well,
1: maybe maybe I don't have that much here <laughs> um <laughs> but i'm I'm trying to to figure out what I could do uh with with game workers unite for my local scene, right, and you know 'cause I'm gonna be shouting to the rafters about this stuff on the internet uh but as far as like actually becoming involved, what well, I would want to know is I think of someone that's been like, I guess bitten once by the industry doesn't want to get bitten again, doesn't want anyone else to get bitten again, and uh, for that reason, I want to actually be a little more active, and I hope that uh, when people look back on, I think the coming decade, I think something's going to finally happen, if not before then. And yeah, I when agree. people look back on this time. You know, I don't want to say that I just watched or that I just left the industry, also. Well,
0: it's this interesting thing. So there's a confluence of things there. Like, obviously, Austin and I on the Hidden Gems panel were talking about how we showcased showcased what they were doing at PAX West where they had their mixer. You and I with Khalif went over to that mixer. Mm -hmm. Um, Austin, you know, from what he's heard and reported on, feels like it's more than just a conversation, more than just talk, that there is. Verifiable action being uh, done behind it, and then from another perspective, uh, this kind of ties into when I had Amanda Hudgens on. We were kind of talking about how, you know, where you guys are in Lexington, in Kentucky, where I am in Richmond, Virginia. Like we're not really considered anything kind of in the game space. Like we're just yeah. we're we we are considered uh, by whatever major studio or area we're closest to, whether it's, you know, Research Triangle in North Carolina, or Bethesda in Maryland, or whatever scene there it might be in D.C. Um, but uh, I can see that also reverberated within the Game Workers Unite Discord. And I mean, and it makes sense that they organize it this way, but they have like region chapters, and on the East Coast, region chapters are like Research Triangle, right, Baltimore,
1: Okay, so yeah, I haven't been on the discord yet, so you could see like people in places like ours saying, like, Hey, I'm like remote from the industry, but I still have these issues. What do I do?
0: But they I mean, they're still located within kind of major thoroughfares of the games industry, which I understand, but it still kind of echoes that sentiment that Amanda and I shared of hey this this kind of makes it feel like we're we're not
1: considered just because we're not in one of these major metros. Well, people often forget. Uh, like where, I guess the, the hot thing to say is where you based at, not where you live. (laughs) Yeah. I like, I like, where do you live, but, um, where do you call home people? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Uh, it's where, um, people forget where I am constantly, but I kind of thought like in my moments of uh, like most rage against the gaming industry, I'm like, I don't want to make music anymore. I just want to be like a union steward. (laughs) <laughs> but never never just retire from like actually making games but just be the person who helps people make games
0: you're going to be standing on the docks at like ubisoft or wherever and being like we got it we got a strike we got to go on strike
1: is that part of what we have to do do we have to build docks by every game studio
0: yeah we gotta, we gotta go gotta go up with like our, our moving vans or our package vans and tell That's all the sadly- day
1: laborers yeah, they get the puddles in from the docks. That's ah, how they put them in the games.
0: Topical. <laughs> uh, I played some Spider-Man. There's plenty of puddles in there. I don't know what people complain about. Mm. Maybe, maybe I have a special version where they put the puddles back in. Um, but yeah, you said something else. I'm trying to. Uh,
1: crap, crap. Always do this. People forget where I am.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Is it, that it, one? Was, it was something. It was farther back. But you, you mentioned something about how. I lost it. Never mind. Okay. Let's keep going. Um but yeah, I I I'm really looking forward to, to what whatever comes of it and how I can contribute to it hmm.
1: with with the union stuff. Yeah. Was was the thing I said about the union stuff?
0: Was was that what was supposed to kick me off to yeah. what I was trying to remember? I no, was it was it about music.
1: Back. I think it was was I'm it about to, me not wanting to get uh, or not wanting to wait around and wait to get hired?
0: Yes, actually, okay. uh let's just cut
1: this part out pretend <laughs> like we figured it
0: out we're we're so cool, so slick. no, it was because I can relate to that from the from the development side or like the the indie programming and uh, side of it, right? because mm. like making making a full game can take so long. And, you know, I talked to I talked to Mike Bithell earlier this year about like the want to be prolific in your work, especially if you're a programmer. And it's hard. He's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, he is. Um, I think he I think he found the good a good like light,
1: lightweight games.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like vignettes. little oh, yeah. Bite sized things. I love things. those.
1: I love short shit. Make more short shit and make it cool. Like subsurface circular was awesome. I haven't played the other one.
0: No, I have. I've. I'm still working my way through Subsurface. Uh, it was one of those kind of. I need a new game on Switch. Oh, you get this. Oh yeah. And uh, it, I, I'm really enjoying it so far. Mm-hmm. But, it. I wish I could work faster. I really wish I could. I mean, I, I. I do this podcast, and I work a regular nine to five, and then whatever time I have left over, I try to contribute at least part part of that to games and then part of it to a social life and you know my significant other and you know you just you just want to feel fulfilled and I I you know received fulfillment from the podcast and you know going to you know hosting a panel with Austin Felix and Khalif and doing all this other stuff but Mm -hmm. you you want to make the game because I mean that's kind of at least there's still a party of this like no but that's what the industry is about it's like you want to make a game mm-hmm. um but i know i know plenty of people that don't make games in the industry like they're they work in pr or biz dev or or composing or music and like i i obviously i consider all those core parts of the game development life cycle um but i just haven't made a product in that in that vein and obviously going triple a would be a difficult ask of me. Yeah. I'm not an impossible ask, but just in terms of where I am in my life and whatever. And I've never touched C. So obviously <laughs> like I would I would have to learn that. Um but I'm glad I'm glad like independent exists, even if it's a shitstorm, indie apocalypse kind of thing. Like at least, you know, people can try and they can put stuff out and do what they want to do.
1: I think you know, I, I love how many, even if they are sad, how many postmortems come out these days. Like, I think I can't figure out who, like, must have kicked it off, but a lot of people are sharing their stories on, like, Gama Sutra now. Um, and I think that in a lot of these postmortems, you see the clear thing that went wrong. So I'm wondering if we're, um, uh, I think Rami Ismail has mentioned like a talk that he did that he deeply regrets. I don't remember what it was. It was like GDC 2013, 2014 mm-hmm. about about like what people making indie games should do and apparently like it needs to be completely revised now. But I'm wondering if we're seeing like a wave of indie games that had a lot of trouble just all hidden at the same time and we're kind of freaking out a little. Cuz I also see um I see like this weird trend of sequelizing in indie games that is like being really warmly um I, I guess welcomed of Spelunky two, Risk of Rain Two, and there's another one. Ooh, Guacamelee Two. Guacamelee Two is a good one. There's there's
2: another one. What is it?
1: Um talked about uh, Overcooked two is one. Mm-hmm. And like there are there are and also like something that really flipped my wig earlier this year um was realizing that the Bandersaga saga has had three games and just like that's what it is yeah and that's that was their plan and they totally did it and it was fine uh and people apparently love that series it was a like a really low-key like wow an indie with a trilogy it's amazing
0: they made it they did it
1: <laughs> yeah it's weird because i've heard people echo the sentiments
0: like you should not make a sequel to your indie game because you know, there's a pretty high probability of uh, diminished returns with a sequel. But Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously these are like pretty, pretty well-regarded seminal indie games. Um, You know, people love Splunky and they love Guacamelee. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's less surprising to me that there are sequels for that, but I, yeah, I mean, I would like to make the first one first (laughs) and then I'll, (laughs) then I'll worry about the sequel but um yeah i i I don't know i feel like the indie apocalypse or indie post apocalypse or wherever the hell we are now with all that stuff uh i i I feel like it's it's more than just a lot of indies having the same idea at the same time and kind of all getting rebuffed together (laughs) i think it's just indies constantly just a slew of them over over and over and over and over again uh because maybe like that's the state of the industry because of the labor stuff because people can be laid off so easily and so quickly without any consideration that mm-hmm. it can it's seen as a lower risk to go independent compared to what AAA is doing which is a scary thought because you look at all of these independent games there seems to be the highest possible risk included in that
1: mm. Yeah, you, know, you have um, more games like I think the amount of indie creators is increasing all the time and with that you're gonna have more failures um right so, so there's that there's just the increased volume which might be a thing
0: but i feel like that remy ismail talk was probably uh out of date the second he gave it <laughs> just because that's the speed of how this industry works now it's just you know and and when you work on a two three four year yeah, development uh cycle there's no guarantee that what was popular when you first started making the game is going to be popular when you finish making the game. Mm. And so I can only imagine how someone like Ben Esposito, who worked on donut County for what, five years, six years, how he must've felt by the end of that. And I mean, obviously he was cushioned with the help of Annapurna because he had a publisher, but it's still a, a scary thought.
1: Yeah. Um, we, I almost said local, but I forgot that only one of them actually lives here, but the, the cardboard computer, the team behind Kentucky Route Zero, which has a vastly different interpretation of my home state than, uh, <laughs> than I ever would. Um, but I see where they got it. Uh, that They kind of have the, I guess what I would call the British TV, the BBC uh, strategy of like, we'll make more when we have an idea or, or, or when we can get it together. Um, mm-hmm. Having like very spaced out and almost completely random releases of the episodes for that game. Uh, over time but like you mentioned Annapurna and it just made me think of how Annapurna's kicking ass I am so like in film in in video games everything that I like right now seems to have Annapurna attached to it but um, they also seem to be like kind of a finisher for these unique games that have been going on without a publisher of like hey let's you know, you want a Switch version? Uh, what what kind of ports do you want to do at the end of this? Let's get you out there in the loudest way possible.
0: Uh, what are they working on besides Donut County or Tom? I can't think of anything off the uh, top Kentucky. of my head. Oh, and Kentucky right? Oh, right, um, right. I think yeah.
1: those are the only three I know about, but I bet there's more. Um, yeah. I, if I had actually played games at PAX, I would probably know. <laughs> Did you not touch anything? Only getting the car loser.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Beeline the- to that. Was that after the Waypoint? Uh, Panel? Did you play that? Yeah.
1: Um, it was. I was always planning to. I'm um, friends with Krista, the composer for the game, and I've uh, on the hush hush. I've been hearing samples of the <gasps> music. I'm really excited about uh, playing it in the actual game, and it's like very powerful. That game. I. It seems like it's going to be out pretty pretty fast. I'm a little surprised, but. Um, a lot of the posts and stuff suggest it's really coming together. So
0: That's cool. Yeah. Um I, I had not heard of that game before uh Danielle was talking about it on the waypoint panel. But it sounds really cool.
1: I'm excited about the idea of like a short RPG. Like everything <laughs> that RPGs have, but short, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh what was that game with the bad poetry? Uh Child of Light was <laughs> okay. All the characters speak in bad poetry, but it was like a 10-hour JRPG. It was awesome.
0: Yeah, that doesn't sound bad. Um, Hopefully, UFO50 has a lot of that stuff, because I know there's some Hmm. shorter RPGs in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I never had any of those multi-game cards, but UFO50 kind of reminds me of uh, this really weird series of 2DS games that were based off of uh, the Japanese program Game Center CX, where a man named Kotaku published like a DVD of it um, a few years ago, called Retro Game Master. It's where like a middle aged man is forced to play through these old retro games.
0: I I am vaguely familiar. Yeah. Gi- Giant Bomb references recently because they were playing that uh, was it Pixel Pixel Hack something nineteen eighty nine? It was that VR game where you are a kid in like. Eighty nine, and you're playing a like a knockoff Game Boy. Um, oh, so the levels switch between like your perspective in like the schoolyard or whatever, and then you're like looking down. You're in the game, and all this different stuff. But they reference that game.
1: Yeah, um, there there was a series of DS games where you would be like made fun of by the the host of the show while you were playing like these little retro games. And there was like an RPG featuring the characters of the show, and uh, it was it was another one of those like multi retro game. Packages. That's cool.
0: They need, they need, there needs to be more games with like a a game
1: show aesthetic wrapped around it. Yeah. Or like recently I played uh, Kirby Superstar slash uh, Super Deluxe on my Super Famicom. And that game is bewildering. Like it has (laughs) like six different games inside of it, like using the same assets in different ways. And it's awesome. And I don't know why more people don't do that and maybe it's just because it goes really well with Kirby but like you have these like these games that are like an hour long each but completely different experiences with like different rules and different difficulties I I don't know it's so weird
0: Hmm. it um I don't know that might just be like a really big design challenge like I mean designing a single rule set can be so exhausting sometimes I can imagine designing six different ones Mm -hmm. and and the Kirby You said Super Famicom?
1: Yeah, Super Deluxe is what the Japanese version that I have is called. I think it was Superstar over here. Okay. I thought you were talking about
0: the uh the NES one, which I knew was one of the last Kirby, or one of the last NES games ever made, I'm pretty yeah.
1: sure. It might be called Dreamland or Kirby's Adventure. Yeah. I don't know. Um but it's a it's a really um like nice and flexible two button game. Like all the all the core Nintendo games or two-button games, I guess. And uh, the the ability of things you can do with Kirby is pretty... Like, it almost seems like you're breaking the game by just playing it normally. Because Kirby can, like, float around almost forever and be safe when it comes to jumps and stuff. And also can uh, eat these creatures and gain their powers. So, uh, sorry, it's my first time playing a Kirby game. And I'm kind of <laughs> shook by how... Like, I finally see the light on that. Uh, I've been playing a lot of cute games recently.
0: Yeah, Kirby... I think my first Kirby game was Nightmare in Dreamland, which was a remake of the NES one for GBA. Oh, nice. Um, and I think that's the only one I've played. I mean, I know everyone loves Canvas Curse, but I never got a chance
1: mm. to play that's, it. If that's a Wii game, then... that uh, was DS. Pro- it, was, oh, it, was it was DS one. Okay. Yeah, because um, it used
0: the touchscreen, because Kirby was a ball, and then you would <laughs> use the touchscreen to create, like, rails that he would
1: roll on. I see. That must have been the first time that Nintendo got onto their time-honored strategy of like taking a particular like fabric or thing and make an entire game based around it
0: yeah i'm a little done with it like like the the paper craft or you know felt yoshi this new yoshi game that just got announced like um yeah. okay i mean like i i want to play a new yoshi's island but i kind of just want to play a yoshi's island
1: yeah like, i'm, I'm- I'm a staunch Yoshi's Island defender. Like, I didn't even know people didn't like that game until I got on the filthy internet and found yeah. out that there was, like, a campaign against it. Because I, I was like, I kind of think that's the best Mario game. That might be a hard, hard take for this, this podcast, but I kind of like it more. Um, I like it more than World. I like it more than World, too. And I, I can't believe that people are so aghast by the fact that it's officially the sequel. I was like, yeah, it's a better game. It's yeah. an improvement. Um, yes. And like it just has so much creativity to it and it uses really odd sounds for the Super Nintendo um, and the the graphical style I think really works and felt like more more beautiful than a lot of the stuff we were seeing at that time because it was a late generation Super Nintendo game I guess. Um, but I think the all the new Yoshi games and I haven't played Yoshi's Island DS which like uses the same graphics I guess but all the ones I've seen, like Yoshi's New Island and this new one they have coming out and the Yarn Yoshi, just look like they completely missed the point and they decided that Yoshi would be like their cutesy character. But like Yoshi's Island was a weird, kind of twisted game. You touch Fuzzy and you get dizzy. Yeah. In that game, you, you get high, you get like speared by people, you, you get you, eaten by a frog, you get eaten a lot in that game and you eat a lot and it, yeah it was just this bizarro game and those those big blobs that come out of the water were so scary yes um, it was
0: Cause it was like the early 3d stuff yeah because it had like that weird texture to it that made them look like they were you know this 3d sphere thing yeah
1: it looks very wrong uh, i yes. still i played through that game last year like all the way through and i still love it and the new yoshi things just they have the egg throwing mechanic but that is it yeah they have they have shy guys i guess probably i don't even know <laughs> are they on stilts if they're not on stilts i'm not interested
0: yeah shy guys are great they came back for that the um uh what was i gonna say in in one of in yoshi's woolly world it's i mean eggs though it's it's yarn it's balls of yarn he throws yeah <laughs> they still I, messed it up like that base mechanic
1: I've been struggling with with Nintendo and like whether I actually like them or not because I don't think I like the Nintendo that a lot of people like I think I like the weird Donkey Kong Country faux 3d and I like stuff like Yoshi's Island and I like Super Metroid I feel like I like all the underrated or underdog uh Nintendo games whereas when I see like a new 3d Mario come out or I don't know something with all the characters in it like that tennis game I'm just like okay Someone will like that. I'm I'm glad that it's coming out <laughs> for those people. I can appreciate both. Like
0: I picked up WarioWare Gold. Mm. Huge, huge fan of that game. Um so, never I, I like, one. I, I, so that was the first one I've ever owned. Um like I played a little bit of Mega Micro games way back in the day. But uh this is the first one I've owned and this is all of them. Like it collects all of the mini games from all the different styles True. of WarioWare. Um so I really like it. And it's that perfect type of weird nintendo like definitely yeah. it has has weird cut scenes like the plot's super oddball and weird when you play as dribble and spit who are the two cabbies and one's a bulldog one's a cat their cabs in space because like that was where they were left off at on the last wario game is that they're someone upgraded their taxi so we could fly in the space and they're <laughs> flying through space and shooting aliens with their taxi cab
1: um yeah that game's weird and i like yeah. it I I like more weird games like um, the reason that I liked Donut County recently um, and I had like some issues with its writing that Mm -hmm. has uh, I've discussed with other people is like was that just me I see that weird line or okay Um, but altogether like the the playing and the flow of the game feels like this unbelievable like weird PS2 game that has been lost for years and it's just now like got remastered so i could finally play it or something but it's not it's a game that came out a few weeks ago um i i love donut county and i guess that it takes a it takes a lot of work to to make something that is just like this perfect three-hour wrapped up god-given game um i like weird i played uh we love katamari in its entirety yesterday and just all the like the weird lore that they build up behind this keen character like he's he's just supposed to be like a a drunk deadbeat dad <laughs> with like with like a weird chin and a very visible package and that's like all he is <laughs> but then they make this whole other game that has me like crying over the keen's backstory I don't know I I love weird games I love yakuza I love that weird games are coming back into fashion I could not be more excited for those
0: yakuza has me very interested uh because i i know nothing about that series and then this past year i've just been hearing people rave about
1: six and zero and kiwami Mm. Mm. so i'm i'm curious i think the weird thing that's happening uh with with yakuza is that i was like slightly aware of it because um i have a friend who had played all the yakuza games and was like oh, screw GTA, you have to get into this. Not exactly, but a little bit like, hey, this is Japan's answer to GTA, and you should check these out. So I played 4 a long time ago, and I thought it was amazing. Um, But now, you know, everyone with 0 was able to jump on, and it's a fantastic game. I think that it teases you into stuff like Majima's appearance that isn't really present in the early things of the series. So I think you have people going into Kiwami 1 and 2 thinking, oh, like a lot of the stuff that was in zero isn't really here because they hadn't felt out like what the game was actually going to be yet. They didn't know how ridiculous they were going to go. So one and two were a little straight mob stories. Um, and they added Majima into that <laughs> because otherwise he's only in like four in the, the zombie game. Dead souls this is the only other time you play as him. Um, but they're adding Majima back into these older games because everyone loves him so much because he's the best. <laughs> For good reason. It, who is this character? I'm not familiar with him. Oh, I'm sorry. Majima is I guess I was assuming you would watch the Giant Bomb uh, Beast in the East. No, yes. I I
0: haven't I haven't watched it yet.
1: Uh, he is a like very sympathetic, wacky like anti-hero um and That's all I can really say, like, if the main character, Kazuma Kiryu, is, like, the noble, um, straight-playing man, then Majima is, like, the fun anti-hero sidekick, or, like, I guess, like, almost how people love Wario or Waluigi, because they're not, like, um, I don't know, well-polished, do-gooder characters, is why people love Majima.
0: What is your stance on Wario and Waluigi? Um, I don't. Is that going to boring Nintendo or is that weird Nintendo for
1: you? I mean, with the case of WarioWare, it's probably like I love I love the story of WarioWare, where Wario just makes a game company and wants to like get money from people or screw them over. Yeah, I think that's a very like <laughs> too real. Yeah, it's too, it's it's very like self referential in a way. It's like Nintendo's like we know where this industry's going. We're gonna make Wario a chief of game dev. Um. Yeah, I do. I think that like watching people appreciate Waluigi has made me figure that out because I really didn't get it before. He's just he's a horrible looking man. He looks like he (laughs) smells bad. He really looks and is unpleasant, but people love the shit out of him. I I can't get enough. I can't get get enough Waluigi. I definitely get it. And I think that it does fall into weird Nintendo. Like, I, I like when they, uh, recently there's been some Tom Nook discourse, mm-hmm. and I started playing Animal Crossing for the first time, so after hearing years of stuff about Tom Nook, I'm getting my actual taste. Um, and so far, I think he's pretty nice. I don't see any problem with, um... He's a sweet dude. <laughs> and, cause he built me a tent before my house is done. And he also did charge me a bunch of money, but it's fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um... And some people have have come to me saying, like, oh, I think he's one of the most misunderstood characters ever. But the way I see it, he was just a game mechanic, and people reacted very strongly to him, and Nintendo has found that and, like, leaned into it. Yeah. Like, making him more and more evil, or like, oh, everything's fine, Tom Nook is here. But knowing what the players think about it. I kind of like that. Nintendo has clearly responded to their audience's reaction to this otherwise just based on a mechanic character.
0: I have also never played a new an uh, Animal Crossing, so I am I'm interested in the one that's going to come out next year.
1: Yeah, weirdly lately um just decided to uh decided that I was going to get really excited for Animal Crossing and Pokemon, like whatever the new iterations on the Switch are going to be. And I'm quelling that excitement since those games aren't going to be out till late 2019. If if then I'm quelling that excitement. I, I just bought Ultra Moon, and I bought a New Leaf. And I'm trying both of them out. So far, Animal Crossing, I really like it more than any of those, like, chill, simple life, do things at your own pace, log in a little bit every day things. Like, I tried Stardew Valley, wasn't really into that. I tried Harvest Moon uh, earlier in my life. Couldn't really get into that either. But Animal Crossing just has the right mix of, like, being very accessible and uh, very addictive,
2: I guess.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess in my eyes, I always saw uh, Stardew Valley as like a mix of a Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing. I mean, the, the more I hear, I, I think it's more just like a, a uh, modernized version of Harvest Moon, but uh, yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested in, in trying out a Animal Crossing, collecting some bells, you know, going fishing
1: whatever yeah it's um it's it's neat it's a collectible game with a very small inventory it's clear what they're trying to do <laughs> uh, like limit the amount of stuff you could do every day i think um one of the things that best prepared me for animal crossing was hearing uh vinnie caravella from giant bomb his story of how he bought it for a plane trip and then realize you were only meant to play like 30 minutes to an hour a day <laughs> so started just playing drift started playing and then it was like oh there's nothing else to do until this time next day so i've just been every day i wake up and I, <laughs> for the past four days i wake up and i just immediately play 30 minutes of animal crossing and then go about my day
0: and there's something to that there's something to a game and obviously nintendo is pretty good about this there's something to a game telling you okay you should stop playing now
1: I love it. Nintendo does that a lot. Sometimes it's more annoying because I remember when I was playing Earthbound, I didn't want to stop because it was very good. And there's constantly, every time you save, your uh, dad, who never appears, is telling you, hey, maybe you should take a break. (laughs) You've been playing for a long time. Um, And like giving, except for, I guess, the Final Fantasy games with their ridiculous save points, um, Nintendo has always been really good at giving you a way out because, I don't know, for me, I had two brothers, and the time on the console was very limited. So it was really good if you could save pretty yeah. often. And just general time limits from our parents. Uh, so a game where you couldn't save very often, you might never get through it. It was fucking rough.
0: <laughs> yeah, I understand. It, you brought up something interesting about N- Ness's dad, who never shows up, mm-hmm. and just fatherless family JRPGs. Uh yeah. I remember once I was, I was, I took a screenwriting class in, in college and this one, uh, we would write whatever we wanted to, like any sort of like, uh, genre or whatever, like animated movie, you know, it wasn't like, we weren't filming it or anything. So we just say, oh, this is going to be an animated movie. And so mm-hmm. think of it from that lens. Uh, so this one woman wanted to write an anime, animated movie and, um, it was kind of Kung Fu Panda esque where it was all anthropomorphic animals, uh, as the characters, And it was very, um, anime, uh, Japanese culture inspired. And (laughs) there's a part, the, the main character, uh, was like this aspiring chef that was like still living at home, but the, I I think her father wasn't around anymore. And so that, that, that played into like the sense of loneliness or, you know, um, never, never knowing her father. And I asked, (laughs) Because obviously I'm an idiot gamer and my only <laughs> touch point culturally is video games. And I'm like, so is this like a trope in like Japanese storytelling? Because when I played Pokemon, <laughs> there was no dad. And everyone looked at me like I was insane. And then maybe like a year or two later I found about I found out about this this kind of thing about how a lot of those JRPGs did talk about their, the fatherless family because a lot of these developers grew up where their father was either working all the time or is no longer around or something like that so there was like kind of this part of this generation that grew up not really knowing their dad and they kind of mixed it into their art and I read that and I was like you fucking fucking classmates you piece of shit god
1: damn it. <laughs> it's really it's, it's it's interesting that it's Ah, uh, the mom a lot in that in, in Japanese culture because, um, in like this year we have the ultimate sad dad game, God of War, <laughs> uh-huh. which is just clearly like so clearly that it, it almost made me blush a few times. It is clearly like sad game developer men trying to apologize to their families. Right, for like, being this game is all time. so fucking ridiculous with it. Um, and I ended up like the story ended up not landing with me, but I couldn't believe how on its face it was about like having trouble connecting with a son, um, or a wife. And no, there, there are other like sad dad games out there. This one takes the cake, I think, but clearly we have a lot of developers who are, instead of. Reflecting on their own dads not being around, they are the dad that's not around, right? And are trying to like apologize for that through games, and it's
0: really weird. Like God of War is Corey Balrog's apology to his children, yeah, for not being around. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's it
1: it goes just goes back
0: into the union stuff, man.
1: And the um, I guess everyone cites I wasn't like into games when this happened at all, but uh, the I guess like the EA spouse. Right. Where a bunch of a bunch of partners of EA employees wrote in about like how how shitty the work life balance was from their perspective,
0: and I'm really curious how much that stuff's improved, if at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Um, like working in AAA sounds terrifying. I don't. I don't know if I could ever do it. My reasons are a little different. Like I would have to probably end up doing like a small part of a role. Whereas now I feel like I play like three roles on every game I become a part of, and I really like being that in control. Whereas with AAA, I might end up like, oh, chop this dialogue for us, or hey, be be a link in a chain where you do this much work. And I don't know. I, I like indie because I just have this ultimate control to like learn new things. Um. Uh, but the bigger real issue would be like okay you're moving to this huge expensive city and you maybe have a right. job for a year. Yeah.
0: Your rent's going to quadruple. Also, here's a uh contract gig.
1: Yeah. Um and, and for me, you know I live I think my city probably has one of the lowest cost of living um in the country right now. Like my my rent is 625 uh and it so so like doing the rate that I do from here, I really only have to make like a few songs a month to be good. Uh, Whereas if I go to a disgustingly expensive city and get paid like an okay salary, it might actually be worse or I might not be keeping as much of that money as I would like to. And sound people are the best to have remotely. So, right know there should be more remote jobs in this industry. That's something I would really, really fight for if I was part of I agree. Game Workers Unite as you know, as we're both remote people, so I'm sure you feel that too. Yeah. Um that you shouldn't have to move for certain positions.
0: Or that studios should just be in, you know, or that, yeah. other you other about, locations.
1: I bet you talked about that with Amanda. Like we have a good incentive yeah. for having businesses here and still uh no one has really like Amanda is a huge event runner. So, mm-hmm. um, they're always talking about like, oh gosh, support small events. And if there was only like, if only people would take a chance on like a smaller, middler America, uh, area to do their big event at, it would be so much better.
0: Well, coming from the other side from like, uh, you know, um, Studios being incentivized to move to to other locations and you can get that incentivization from like uh state or municipal, you know, grants or funding. Like the with THQ Nordic acquiring the rights to Kingdoms of Amalore, the whole discussion about yeah. <laughs> how much Rhode Island the state of Rhode Island gave thirty eight studios for to develop kingdoms of Amalore and Project Copernicus kinda cropped up again. It was like that that stuff sucks because when that stuff fails, I mean, I was reading about it with, um, I forget, I don't know if it was department of energy, whoever was giving grants out for, for renewable energy initiatives mm-hmm. when Obama was still president and everyone would point to, the Solera bankruptcy and liquidation as like, that's why this program doesn't work. That's why we shouldn't give money to this program or to, to any of these, you know, uh, clean energy initiatives and it, it, it's just such a stark contrast to how, you know, the public sector and the private sector divot, uh, diverge so wildly. Because, you know, if, if I'm a VC and I invest in, you know, 10 different businesses and six of them fail, but the other four do really well, then I have, I have done well and I'm going to get more money to... Ed- invest in, in in companies and entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. But from the government perspective, if they invest in 10 companies and one of them fails, then that whole pro- program is useless. Yeah.
1: And they and and they put it all on Kurt Schilling, who is like the failed Vince McMahon of video games. A shitty person, and he doesn't do well. <laughs>
0: that's so weird. Especially listening to how like Rich Gallup talked about it, because he was like, yeah, d- my former boss is doing some really gross stuff, but Mm-hmm. He wasn't doing that when he was my boss, so I don't
1: know what's going on. My, um, the the director of a game I work on right now, Cerebral, a 2D fighter, Um, our director and lead artist worked at 38 as well. Oh, okay. And also has that weird feeling of like, wow, that, that guy is just running rampant with bad shit now.
0: Maybe 38 just broke him. Maybe when all that stuff went south. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe it just all came to the fore after that stuff broke down. And he was able to
1: like hide it from people. Uh, I I do have I have one diehard Kingdoms of Amalur fan uh, friend, and I I never really got it because I did play a little bit of it at their request. And it seems like maybe if this is one of your first action RPGs, it's like whoa, interesting story and um like neat character designs, but otherwise I
0: don't know. I mean. It does seem a little generic from, like, uh, aesthetically speaking. It mm-hmm. does kind of feel like that Lord of the Rings, World of Warcraft kind of slurry of just high elves and weird sharp angles and naturalistic influences in all the architecture.
1: Yeah. I recently uh, was dating someone who was really into, what is it, Champions of Norath, which is like a weird Diablo-esque right okay it's almost like a bargain bin ps2 game but they were so attached to this uh game and, and the, just the idea of someone like finding the knockoff before the real thing is really is really fun to me like oh wow you you would have liked diablo so much more but you found <laughs> champions of norath
0: why well, it's like I, I look at amalur and it gives me a lot of fable vibes exactly yeah and i and i really like fable and so i was like maybe it's maybe maybe i should give this game a shot and so if they i mean i guess it's still you can still buy it uh even after what happened
1: right it didn't like require online or anything that kills games
0: right but i think like i think they bought it from the state of rhode island and i think even when the state of rhode island had ownership of that ip they still uh just allowed it to be sold because i guess they were trying to recoup costs but uh, I'd be willing to pick it up. I'm just excited for what TQ Nordic's doing because I'm a big Red Gorilla fan, and seeing this remastered edition of Red Gorilla, I mean uh, Red Faction, Red Faction, Red Faction Gorilla, seeing this remastered version of it, uh, gives me hope that we'll see another Red Faction in the vein of Gorilla and not in the vein of Armageddon.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think that I've ever seen a company like, just like Alien. Um, Face hug another company (laughs) and become all of their properties the way that, I guess, what was it called? Nordic Games before, and now it's THQ Nordic. It's like if a bunch of people bought Konami (laughs) and just started making those games or something. I don't know. It's so weird. That'd be crazy. Could you imagine? I would love for anyone to pick up even one of those IPs. Some of the best IPs in the world are just rotting. Yu-Gi-Oh! Excited
0: for a new Yu Gi Oh! game from whoever acquires that part of Konami. No, but I agree. Like, I couldn't imagine a modern day studio like buying Castlevania and making a new modern Castlevania or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: Atlas with Sui Koden would be great. Oh, God. Oh, man. People talk about that a lot. <laughs>
0: the, um, but yeah, the, 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 the THQ Norik stuff's crazy. The, the Amalur stuff's crazy. Going back to music. Sure. Um, so you were talking about how you liked kind of the many different hats you wear for smaller projects. Are all those multiple hats concerning audio or is it roles outside of audio as well?
1: Oh, I don't. Um, the only other thing I do besides having great communication skills and an English degree is uh, that I like graphic design and I like video editing. So sometimes I'll make trailers for the games I work on. Uh, and it goes well with being a sound person because then I can make custom sound to score the trailer. And I think, I think that's what makes a trailer is the sound more than anything. I agree. And I, uh, usually like I've, I've jumped into all these roles. I started as just like a not great composer and I became a good composer. And then I was asked to jump into sound design shoes and, that could have gone disastrously because what I didn't know at the time is that like everything to do with sound design almost goes against the rules of what you learn as a musician. So it's very difficult, but um I luckily ended up liking constructing sounds too. Now I listen to sounds all day and try to figure out how they were made. Um And after that, I was asked to jump into VO and jump into casting and, um, All this, so I kind of just went from from roll to roll um, and expanded naturally by taking the the plunge. Um, But otherwise, yeah, most of my hats are audio related. Okay. And they all connected from the last thing I learned in some way.
0: That's cool. When you said that uh, sound design differs from composing, do you mind going into that a little bit? Because I mean, sure. I I understand it a little bit about how they're different. So like, um, you know, I'm 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 friends with Dicey uh, and Tunic. Obviously, Lifeforms doing the soundtrack, but then Power Ups doing the the actual sound design. And obviously, sound design can go into like barks and and other aspects, and you know, attack it sounds and stuff like that. Whereas compositions, the actual music and the score. Um, but in what way does Doing sound design, kind of, how is that antithetical to composition
1: work? Well, um, when I'm making a composition, I feel that like once I'm settled on my sounds, I could I have kind of have a whole palette to just work from every time. Uh, whereas with sound design, every single sound requires its own palette, almost every single type of sound. It's like okay, here's the crunch layer and here's the bonk layer. Um, sounds are so are so layered, and you have to do such weird, like illogical things. Looking from a musician's perspective, to each sound, like oh, I I understand. Like in music, obviously, I wouldn't want to make like a really staccato sound that just cuts off really unnaturally because it's a musical. And it might be disturbing unless I'm making like an aphex twin track or something. Um, but in sound design, I'm gonna want that very disconnected, like impact to, uh, like an old school NES hit sound. It's that it's actually the space, the empty space between the impact and, uh, the like crash that makes it. It's the wind up to a punch that is more important than the actual punch. There are a lot of things that don't make sense until you hear it and it's like, oh okay, that's how that was made. Like a punch sound without a wind up sucks actually. It's it's all in the swing and the hit together, not just the hit. Um and sometimes when you're making like more abstract sounds for like retro style games. Um like when I'm making it, the sound of someone rolling realistically. I'm going to want like clothes sounds. I'm going to want like the sound of whenever their their any part of their body hits the ground. I'm going to want to score that. Uh, but when someone's rolling in an NES game, it can just be like, or some like very unrealistic, but like still representative of what's happening on screen. Like you, you have to have to think outside the box a lot. And I think the amount to which someone will want you to do that can vary, but you end up having to make like these creative solutions is like, okay, this is not how this would really sound, but it sounds good or it seems to match. And it's, it's almost like the, the indescribable taste of umami uh, when it comes to Japanese food of just figuring out that, that perfect way of, representing an action on screen with sound that is very satisfying that there's no rule book for it. Really. There's, there's a rule book for certain sounds like realistic martial arts punch sounds. You know, there's, there's a way that you do that, but for other things, things that have never been expressed before or uh, like a horror game door is going to sound different from a, just a door that doesn't matter, I guess. Right. Yeah. There's, you have to take everything into context in a way that is more more like minuscule details are involved than making music, I think.
0: And you, you mentioned it before, since your, your formal education, you said you have an English degree.
1: Yeah, I've, I've self-taught on all this. That's why I speak so weirdly. And I think people <laughs> find that charming sometimes, but I'm not very good at talking to other sound designers and musicians. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do they get really formal on you? Oh, yeah. Uh, And I know what they're talking about, but I know it from feel, whereas they know it from like books. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's being
0: someone that I feel like I at least have a general grasp on a lot of different fields of art, Mm -hmm. whether it's visual art or uh, um, I guess it's mostly visual art for me. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. like uh, podcast editing, I can I can understand a lot of that stuff um, and have done a lot of that from feel music feels like my last mountain to climb for that to at least like understand it I mean i can I can tell I can tell you about musicians that I really like and and why I like there and like the emotions that derive from certain pieces and stuff and like hey, this track would sound really good for like an underwater level and I can kinda explain why you know the emotions that I feel when that comes from or this feels like a good like you know, main theme or et cetera, et cetera. But um there's I I don't know if I need to start understanding like, you know, octaves and 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 things of that sort, like the actual technical aspects, because my uh colleague Will Blanton, you know, does a lot of all of the different aspects and is pretty good at, at at sound design and and composition, especially from like a, a chiptune uh perspective and he's able to understand like major and minor scale and all that stuff and i'm just like i don't know i just i'm gonna plug stuff in here and if it and if it sounds
1: bad i'm gonna get really upset and not do it Mm -hmm. anymore i'm I'm so jealous of of chiptune artists sometimes because you have like the palette and that's it of sounds so it's all up to you and your compositional mastery and just making fun melodies and I kinda am very jealous <laughs> because when I'm when I'm making uh a, a soundtrack, I don't know what sounds to start out with, uh sometimes. But yeah, is if uh if you're not planning to make music yourself, I think the best thing to do would just be like detailed listening and taking notes of the stuff that you like and figuring out why you really like it. Listening to the same song Um, being able to isolate certain parts of it, like a guitar or like what the drums do here or what the bass does here and understanding like, Oh, this is, this bass is unique. It's different from the bass in this genre or this song. Um, Being able to like evaluate individual parts of music and also understand the emotion of an entire piece. I've never met anyone in games who wasn't somewhat passionate about music that I had to talk to. Like I've never had, a job where someone is just like, ah, do whatever you think is good. There's always like some example tracks posted and I'm very, I don't know how other composers are, but I'm very like example positive. I want to be told like exactly what you want. Um, So I think for, for working with composers, the best thing to do is just having music appreciation. And I know there are even music appreciation classes you can take. So I think that would be the most valuable thing for me is in communicating with a, a game dev who doesn't do music
0: that's 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 really good to know and i'm sure any other devs listening to this really appreciates that those uh uh
1: helpful hints oh yeah indie is scary because at some point you have to hire people but you don't know how to do that and <laughs> you don't know how to do that well you don't know how to do that effectively right yeah but but yet it's going to cost the same amount of money even when you're figuring it out so it's scary. Yeah.
0: I I'm and I'm also glad you brought up like uh example tracks. 'Cause I've 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 like worked with graphic designers or for other projects. And I'm like, well I have all the you know, I have this mood board or whatever, it's Like, do you want to look at it? And some are like, Yeah, sure, send it over. And some are like, No.
1: That's weird. It's really weird. I, I honestly can't imagine like not taking that kind of feedback. I would think that every artist would be like that, but maybe there are some people that's just too precious. They're they're <laughs> their uh, like immediate reaction might be how they work off art. So they just want to have the immediate reaction to your thing and just hit the blank slate right after that. Whereas I want details.
0: Right. Or it also might just be a case of originality. Like if, if you're already giving them stimuli to work off of, then like they're
1: kind of the boxes already being drawn around them. Mm -hmm. As someone who, uh, who really loves samples and, uh, Uh, I guess demystifying the The inspiration angle On art I'm not I don't buy into the like I can't be touched by anything I just have to make pure art Things so much
0: But what is art? Is what we're doing art? Are games art?
1: Uh, Can you charge money for it? Then it's art
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what if I don't? Is Is it not art? It's also art Oh yeah! Wow, Melot, you illuminated me on this. I really appreciate that.
1: <laughs> no problem.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, samples. Do you want to uh, talk about your your podcast you do about sample studying?
1: Yeah. Well, I I recently expressed this to someone as as uh, what I want to do when I'm old. So my first uh, traveling down this path of becoming a sample historian. And uh, in, in, uh for those who aren't familiar. Sampling is the act of like either either literally taking a, another piece of music or sound and and using it in a new way or like interpolating uh like replaying a guitar part or something and and reusing it or even like repurposing vocals can be considered sampling the act of like taking something that's older that came before you and making something new with it uh so I have a podcast called The Sample Study in which I use my like unique perspective and production skills uh, to take songs that I've listened to a lot and try to recreate them. Ones that are based around a sample uh, live and show it in layers in uh, like how, which effects were used even Uh, as detailed as I can go over like the history of these artists and why one found the other and made use of them and detail how the production actually happened. And a lot of people found it interesting. I think I have like five or 600 listeners every time I put an episode out, which is amazing. And, and like the weird thing is that as I've gone on, uh, it's become more and more tiring to produce it, but like more and more people are demanding it. Uh, So it's a really weird uh, thing. But um, you're in that cycle now. You're in that vicious cycle. Yeah. I have a lot of requests, probably like a year's worth of requests right now. and that is my first step to what i eventually want to want to be writing about sampling i want to be making videos about sampling because i think that it is um but i also don't want to blow blow up the spot because the the weird thing about about hip hop about a lot of the hip hop has a built-in gatekeeping to it to keep certain people out from like, ruining the coolness, I guess. Uh, so so um, And also, because some of the stuff that is being done is illegal. Like, uh, there are a lot of uncleared samples. And I try not to cover samples that I think would be hot <laughs> on, uh, on the show, because I don't want to blow up someone's... Yeah, hot samples. Yeah, one of, the, one of the worst things you can be called out for in hip-hop is sample snitching. And you wouldn't know it for how many YouTube videos you can scroll down and look in the comments and someone would be like, oh, it's a sample of this. And I want, I want the podcast to be deeper than that. I want it to engage more than that. And I want it to talk about samples that are safe, whether it's because they were done so long ago or because they were cleared. Um, but I think it's important to, to somehow document the techniques of sampling, like the different ways that you can approach one the more abstract ways, the more clear ways, and how all of them are valid and all of them could lead to interesting results. Um, I don't think anyone's writing about that. I don't think people are talking about that enough. The The one thing that I can see in the, in the culture that reflects it is uh, a mass appeal. Uh, the, I think they're a record label. does a series of, of uh, YouTube videos called Rhythm Roulette, where they have artists go and pick three records from a record store, like just be on the spot, pick three random things and take it back to the studio and make a beat right there. And you can see the creative process through that live. And sometimes they're cut weird. So you don't see everything, but you can see some of it. And that's like a really helpful thing. Um, So what I most want to like stamp out is, is gatekeeping is uh, not, not giving away the magic, I guess, because I think even though, sure, it's disappointing to sometimes know exactly how everything was made, it also helps artists come up and do that themselves. Uh rather than when I was younger, I always felt that there was something being kept for me. And as I learn more, it turns out I was totally right. There's a lot of stuff being kept from me on how you do these simple things. And I, I don't want that to happen, but at the same time I don't want to like be accused of ruining the culture giving too much away so it's going to be a a difficult thing to do and i think i want to do it slowly and i want to do it with the with the right people having their eyes on me so i would love for um the podcast sample study to get picked up by one of these uh you know maybe someone who doesn't have a rhythm roulette show and wants to have their own like cool sample studying show because i'll do it for you basically you Um, heard it
0: here here's your (laughs) offer
1: yeah, trying to sell the sample study. Um, yeah, I, w- I would love to be like a 60-year-old dude who just knows everything that's ever been sampled and will tell you about it and has like shelves of records. And that's what I'm known for. Um, weird weird pivot from working in games, for sure. <laughs> but I think that's what I enjoy most is just going through my libraries of sounds and music and, and uh, cataloging them, putting stickers on them. Uh, to go back to them later. That's when I most enjoy making music. And That's I, would, awesome. I would love for more people to get into that and not be afraid of sampling. And the snitching thereof. Yeah. And the snitching. It's with, uh, with lo fi hip hop in particular having like a surge um, recently. It's a genre where everyone kind of samples like either Ghibli songs or like Japanese composers over and over again and it's so funny cuz you can't not know that you're doing it but you're doing it it's the weirdest thing i've ever seen like in in uh, classic hip hop it was such a big deal if you sampled the same thing as someone else you would have to like really do it in a really new way or you would be immediately just like washed up and no one would fuck with you but in this lo-fi hip hop thing like people are doing almost exactly the same song as someone else and just having their own slight twist on it, and it's fine. Um, when I and if if people aren't familiar, it's these like endless streams of really calming music that I really took off in 2017 after being around for quite a while.
0: Hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that your podcast is doing well for you. I know you've mentioned before, just or you and you obviously mentioned it now. Yeah, we should the... have we should talk a little bit about podcast stress. It's real. It exists. <laughs> it's uh it's a hard road to hoe
1: yeah, I was um talking to Dave Lane about uh team GFB Radio, the podcast he runs, and I think that it's like once anyone anyone in that is involved with production starts to feel tired, it can kind of bring down the whole thing uh, once once anyone feels uninvolved or starts to feel like it's a drag you know the the interesting things you bring to the show when you first start you're like oh I'm gonna plan all this stuff for the podcaster every game that I'm playing right now I need to digest this into a few topics to talk about for this podcast and I still I ran a video game podcast for a year um, like 2014 I think is when we did it and I still can't when I play games, I'm not going to be on a podcast about them, but I'm still kind of cataloging, okay, what are my three points to hit for this? Sure. And it usually just ends up being a Twitter thread, but I can't not do that anymore. It kind of cha- yeah. It changes the way that you interact with whatever your podcast is about. And it also, the way that you feel about your podcast changes over time. I, I joke a lot with Amanda about like podcast failures <laughs> or... um like the amount of ridiculous effort that goes into these things that everyone has and it's so competitive.
0: Oh, you mean like indie games?
1: Yeah, everyone wants to have a podcast and it's, it's amazing to me that more uh, companies aren't catering to this. I know that there's like podcast slash Twitch uh, streamer packs that you can buy of like microphones, but about software other than Audacity for, for making podcasts, it would be amazing if there was, you know, there are a few... I used a app called Zencaster on a podcast I was on recently that just records and syncs up everything right there in a browser window. Oh, Uh, wow. It's kind of amazing. But as far as like a dedicated piece of software for it, I haven't really seen anything. Like um, Audacity has a lot of interesting effects that you can use to clean up your podcast, but it's still, you kind of have to know about them from production to know what is the right thing to use. And it would be amazing if there was a podcast app that just had very nonsensical descriptions of, like, hey, noise remover. Or I, I don't know what you need, but there are certain things that you can do to really fix up a podcast, like compression to make everything the same level, which I'm not going to name any names, but there are some <laughs> professional podcasts, you know, very, very high up there podcasts that do not level stuff out. So I have to turn your shit way up. Yeah, In order to hear it. Or only one track might
0: be already super loud. And so yes. you got to like do this dance with there's, the volume control. There's
1: one loud person. and Got to record separate tracks. You got to record a backup. You got to do all this stuff. Uh, maybe I should write a guide for podcasters.
0: I didn't record a backup for you, Mello. So if you're audio <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> Good. But that's fine.
0: Um, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I use Audition. Uh, for my stuff that I really like, mm-hmm. and I really like the the kind of effects stuff that I can do. I mean, I don't do a lot of like effects, like oh, he sounds like he's underwater or no. like big booming echo. But I'll do the, I'll do a level, I'll do a noise gate, I'll do uh, a compression. Actually, I use that levelator thing, which is like looks like this fucking antiquated piece of software. You just drag and drop wave files into, but that levels everything out. And then I'll put a, uh, and I'll bring up everything to negative 16 luffs to make sure it's at the right loudness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's what I do. And then I listen through it, uh, for oh. any echoes, nice. uh, for any like kind of long silences, stutters, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be better about that. Cause I used to be really bad about like, Oh, I'm stuttering here. Got to cut it out. Got to cut it out. Um, any ums, I try to, any like uh, extreme repetitive ums, I try to take care of. And it just try to clean up, make it sound like a good product. But I mean that takes a good when I'm not counting going through so I'll listen to it and I'll notarize all the edits I have to make and that will take about the length of the podcast, not a little bit more. And then on top of that I have to go through and edit it and that can take anywhere from four to six hours. Yeah. And that's a week and that's a week. Uh so it's 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 a hard thing. And then, you know, you you put all that work into it, and then you go and upload it. And then you look at the subscriber count, and you get bummed out there. And it's yeah. like every time you upload, you get bummed
1: out. Yeah,
0: but you know you have to fight. You have to derive. And I, I, I put all the production weight on myself because I don't want to put it on my co-hosts, right. um, because they should they should come and be here to to talk to to you know just worry about you know having a good conversation, um, and they shouldn't be burdened with with all the work coming mm-hmm. from that. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a rat race. It's kind of you know you have to work at it, and if you're not deriving you like inherent joy from
1: making the thing, then you're you gonna burn out. Yeah, and there's this I see um, podcasts being done by uh, you know notable people that don't quite take off as well, just because there's there's so many and there's such a limit on people's time, and there's so right. many podcasts. And the discoverability is hard. The discoverability is hard. Finding out (laughs) that you're not as marketable as you thought you are is is hard. Um, Picking a legitimately unique topic is hard. As far as I know, I'm the only person that does uh, sample studies the way I do. Um, But people have sort of compare me to something like Sonic Exploder. But those people aren't producers. They're just guessing and talking. I'm Mm -hmm. doing the real... (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm the real deal I'm the real deal uh, you have to find so many things and then you have to usually you're paying for something you're paying for hosting um, you know it's it's a lot more than than the return can seem and I feel like your your first episodes uh, what did I say recently uh, something about like as time goes on, the production is just as hard for you as it always was, if not harder. But the like listener base doesn't always really change. I think that's that's the difficulty of like you don't always gain new listeners, but you you do gain more stress no matter what. <laughs> so uh, it, at some point, it it gets to a point where you're just like, oh, this is not worth it anymore. Uh, which is where I got to with my previous video game podcast. We did exactly a year. I think we did 52 episodes, one per week, and then quit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is 155, so this is a little over uh, three years. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's gone through some interesting evolutions. Like, obviously, it was me and one guy at the beginning, and then we brought on two other co-hosts, and we did that for a year. And then those three guys um, left for varying reasons. And so I had uh, three new co-hosts, and then uh, so Sam, Alex, and Will – and then Sam left because uh, he moved to LA, and so now it's me, Alex, and Will for the local show every other week. And, and I and I really enjoy. It. I mean, I enjoyed it as much as I did when I started out, and I mean, it's gotten me unique opportunities. I've mm. talked to a lot of awesome people, uh, Mello included. <laughs> and you know, I've done a cool panel series, and I've had awesome people come on that—people I super look up to. Um, but if if we're just talking raw numbers. I mean it's 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 not really there and I mean it's and there's growth I mean it's had positive growth the entire mm-hmm. way, but it's just extremely slow uh, so if you're you want to start one of these and you're expecting something on the scale of like four or five figures coming out of the bat unless you're like really good um, unless you have like a really unique topic and you're interesting to listen to like you know maybe set your expectations
1: rather low yeah and you don't always have to be interesting to listen to uh I listen to the lore podcast, and that guy sucks. oh yeah, <laughs> I mean um, if you' never heard him, it's hard to explain it, but he kind of sounds like a robot, but the things he's talking about are really fascinating, so it works. Sure. I listen to a lot of um like I think that the one of the best things to think about is length when you're making a podcast. if we're really getting into this and I'm gonna be my my producer self I think. And at looking at like the runtime that I could see right now of us, this is going to seem like a diss, but it is what it is. I think an under hour podcast is like the sweet spot. Um, I think like whenever I see podcasts that have clearly taken like the broadcast model and are either like 25 or 45, 50 minutes, like filling within either a half hour or an hour show time. I think that is like the juiciest I th- truly, I think like 15 to 30 minutes is a great sweet spot because it's just as much as it's as long as a commute is. So you can easily like knock off uh, one episode per day or easily have that one day of the week where it's time for this episode. It's very exciting. Um, and when I think of like my podcast budget, it's probably like three or four hours a week is what I can manage to listen to in my time like cleaning my house or traveling or uh doing dishes or uh just taking like walks for fun. I think that I can probably listen to I have I have one hour podcast, uh Bodega Boys with Jesus and Marrow. I have the two hour Giant Beast cast and then I have like two horror podcasts that I listen to. That's mm-hmm. that's my budget. That's a very small budget. So when if you're um a person who's still trying to build a following and you have like longer shows i think it's better it's best to consider like how much of someone's budget you could be taking and how much easily you would how much easier it would be to sell um your your podcast if it was shorter or more focused uh if you can do that and i know that this podcast that i'm on right now is more conversation <laughs> Conversation based, and yeah. Less... Maybe
0: don't look at my my entire backlog. No, and... I did
1: already. Oh <laughs> no, um, oh no. I, I think that um, the sample study that I make lends itself towards being very tightly edited. They're all scripted, so I'm just reading off a paper, and then I play the psalms, which obviously has been pre-produced. I'm not doing it live. Um, people think they want that, they don't want that, but they are getting it through my Patreon. I'm doing a live. Uh, production of the beat for each week now, um, starting this month, um, and I think that like not every topic lends itself because what we're doing right now, we're we're having a conversation that branches and goes in interesting ways, in a way that can only happen if you talk to someone for a long time, um, and get comfortable. Whereas if we were going to do a tight twenty minutes on who I am, that would be much less interesting so it's just it's just what this show has to be,
0: right, and that's I mean, and that's what gives me faith about like you know one day we'll make it mm-hmm. because when I talk to people, uh people are uh very positive about. The types of conversations that happen here—it's like, oh wow, it's you know—I I have colleagues that do more interview-style podcasts for mm-hmm. that, that are centered around video games and whatnot, and you know, and they and they do very well for them, but that's just not the kind of show I want to do. Like, obviously, I want it to be informative and educational to a degree, but I—I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not a journalist, right? Like, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not here for that. I'm here to show that there's more to being a creator than just the creation and just like the factoids about what you made and obviously people's craft is very important and valuable and I and I love digging into that stuff but I also love just getting to know people.
1: Yeah, I think that like the best thing to do to promote a podcast like this, this is a weird segment, uh, but to promote this podcast that I'm on I think a great thing to do would be to highlight like a certain conversation you had with a known creator, or like, hey, if you really if you want some more time with this person that you wouldn't get on their own show or their own content or that you would never get because you found a very reclusive person that people would want to hear from, um, you would put that forward as like the big value of your show. Like check out these five episodes that I think were the most interesting.
0: And I do that with each recording. It's like I'll reference back to previous recordings and talk about like, hey, this is how this conversation links to this other thing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's both to be like this. It's a tapestry, right? Like I think the most valuable things about podcasts is that it's another form of storytelling to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like it's it, it's about learning and growing with people. I mean, we've, we've referenced Giant Bomb a couple times, and I don't know how other people view those podcasts, but I view them more than just, you know, Educational or informative or entertaining, right? Like they're hilarious, but I, it's, it's you're you're sitting down with people that you feel like you've known forever, even though like, unless you're in the industry or whatever, you might not get a chance to talk to them.
1: Yeah, not every not every podcast has that vibe of like, uh, we ourselves on the show, our voices have some value to people. Like, um, when I when I listen to the Giant Beast Cast every week, I do think of it is like catching up with friends, almost. You know, I, have, I have friends. I have friends. <laughs> um, obviously, the people on the Beastcast aren't really my friends, but um, it is the thing that happens when you listen to a lot of podcasts, I think, is that you actually get better at being conversational. And I found, like, I'm, I'm a very much a loner person. I have an apartment by myself, and I love it. I am probably social once a week. But if I listen to podcasts and I constantly hear voices and conversations being had, it make it ensures that when I do meet up with someone, I'm not like uh, I haven't, I haven't talked to anyone, interacted with anyone for so long. You know, I'm not like a hermit. Every time I go out, um, podcasts kind of allow me to, to practice conversational patterns and uh, mannerisms and, um, healthy back and forth of, like, hey, ask questions, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, seeing, like, having a model to base my conversations off of was really helpful for, for, for me in, um, like, times of loneliness or just, like, not feeling like I actually wanted to be around people. Making sure that I don't lose the ability to be around people again. Like, um I bet lighthouse keepers listen to a lot of podcasts. Who, yeah. who are other isolated people people on uh on navy bases or like antarctic research stations yeah podcasts are good for that um sentry guards people <laughs> hearing hearing voices is underrated as a way <laughs> to i don't know podcasts are healthy and you should listen to at least one that's what i that's what i say Hopefully it's one of ours. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if they heard that message and they already listened to yours. hmm They made it this far. i like, no, nah, I think I'm done. I think <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> now that now that you mentioned it, I don't want to hear voices. Thanks for <laughs> illuminating that. I didn't realize what I was doing. And pause,
0: delete, unsubscribe, delete app, turn off phone, cast into the sea. <laughs> Um well mellow, I think that's a good place to, to end it on our uh, metatextual podcast study. Mm-hmm. Um thank you so much of for course. coming on and talking. Uh, where can people find you?
1: Uh, I am most vocal, unfortunately, through Twitter. Uh, on the bird site. Twitter.com slash mellow makes. Mellow without the W makes. Uh, and you can also find my music at two mellow makes dot bandcap.com. That is, you can look at all my 20 ish albums and decide what you like. I got plenty of stuff there. My latest release is return of the soul, which is a, um, hip hop point making album. I think that I make a point on every track in a way that I don't always necessarily hear. Like every track has a very, Oh, this is what this is about feel to it. So I think even if you don't usually like hip hop, I would recommend you checking that out. Maybe you will find more to like. Um, before that, I had Memories of Tokyo Toe, which was a jazzy, electronic, um, higher energy album based on the sounds, the very unique sounds of the Jet Set Radio and Jet Set Radio Future Games, as well as the style of just um, games in general in the Shibu- shibuya K era of uh, Japanese music where they were taking after hip-hop and different styles that hadn't come into Japan before, which was like late 90s, early 2000s. You hear a lot of weird samples in game music, um, drawing from that era in particular that I love. Uh, so, yeah, those, I think the, those are my two best albums. And it's Return per-
0: of the Soul is very good.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoy it. It's pretty wild to be in a position where I've created the two best things that I think I've made in like the past six months. <laughs> and like, what am I doing next? Well, I'll tell you what i'm doing next i talked about at the very beginning of this show uh trunk fiction is a i'm going to try to tell a story almost non-verbally through six songs on this uh drum and bass jazzy sci-fi tinged ep um that is coming out i think i said october 2nd is that really oh it's so soon so
0: that'll be by the time this episode comes out it should already be out
1: God, the first Tuesday of October, Tuesday is my release day, uh, is when I'm aiming to have that out. And uh, it's Trunk Tuesday. Trunk Tuesday. Perfect. Um, That's a very experimental thing. And uh, hopefully people will like it. It's I love that genre. And I wanted to work in it in like a full project for a while. And I'm just going to do this little snippet because it's very experimental and I don't know if it'll land. It's much different than what I've been making, so. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank
2: you. Uh,
0: And if you like this podcast and you want to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can find them at word-games.com forward slash podcast. Uh, We're also on Twitter at word video games. You can also subscribe to any of our podcasts on uh, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, any other podcast services. Um, If you're listening to this episode through the site. There is a subscribe button for Google Play, iTunes, and our personal RSS feed right below the player, so give that a click. If you like this episode, give us a review. Um, Mello, thank you again for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Me too. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. All right.
2: So my modus karate, don't evolve. Ganja, booze, a beer. Party favors at the shows. Dressing rooms full of those. Players looking to propose a toast. Nope. I've been around the world, but like my bedroom the most. Though <laughs> you know I won't go away. I got the golden voice, even a ventriloquist couldn't throw away. I need understanding, my presence is demanding Buy some merch, maybe I can spin it on a stand-in One mellow, cause the two are seeing double after about three drinks So before I get into trouble, slap you five and grab a taxi Don't even have to ask me if I'm tired Y'all stay wide like old telephones I need my time alone in my home Create my zone prone, cuddling with an old movie on And I'm gone, so if you're calling me To come back to the streets and get freaks Please, I ain't even trying to get beat hour body beeper, sleep, Don't drink, don't eat. You just want to get in trouble, do the hustle Everybody do the hustle, get in trouble You just love to get in trouble, do the hustle Everybody do the hustle You gotta understand, I wish I could live like you But I can't be a man, don't intuition Just understand, you know I really like you But I must have a plan Don't in on intuition and partner why